Have you ever wanted a safe space where you can just exist? Where, for a moment in time, you can be you with all the intricacies and parts of you that people don't always understand? Welcome to In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us. I'm your host, Zach Stafford, and each episode, we create a space to be you, all of you, in all your messy and complicated glory. Every story shares what it means to be a Black and Latinx man living with different hardships, whether it's the struggle of identity, discrimination, or health, and how they've managed to push forward despite the circumstance. We hope to get closer, even if just a little, to a road of healing and understanding. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Today's episode is all about the community I think most of us have, and that's the Chosen Family. Sometimes life throws us in directions that we don't foresee, and in some cases it leaves us in situations where we don't have our family unit, either because circumstance has forced us to keep our distance or they've chosen not to stay. But somewhere along the way, we start to create our own chosen tribe, handpicked and selected through shared experiences. It's those friends that come up in the unexpected times, that first day of college, that stressful day at work, or even a fun night out that are so special and crucial in the shaping of who we are. Like some of us, our guest Anthony Delgado has a loving family. But along his own journey to self-love and redemption, he had to rely on an unlikely chosen family, one that helped him get through some tough times riddled with homelessness and addiction. Anthony was born in Worcester, Massachusetts, and remembers the good old days, the ones where people helped each other, took care of each other. This original community is the one that shaped his formidable years, the one where he learned discipline before joining the military and before things took a drastic turn. As a kid, I grew up with a single parent and 12 of us in our family. I just appreciated my brothers and sisters and the people in my neighborhood. It was a very, back in those days, the neighborhood was a neighborhood. If you get out of line, your next door neighbor will come and paddle your butt. That's what I mean. Try that today, you're going to jail. <laughs> so everybody took care of each other back then. I'm 65, so coming up as a kid, friendships meant something. It was loyalty. The neighbors took care of each other. You have your balak parties and everybody brings a dish and, you know, stuff like that. But uh, I kind of straight a lot when I was a kid. I, I really didn't have the discipline that I should have had. My mom was the best ever, man. She did everything she could to raise us the best she could. And I think about that today, man. I Coming up, how many times I must have broke her heart, you know? But she still loved us. She still loved me, and she did great bringing us up. When I was in trouble, I should tell you, no, you're going to be okay. You know, and it's just like she made you feel good. She disciplined the heck out of you, know, but she not let you know that you did okay. The best thing she did for me is when she signed for me to go into the Marine Corps. And I didn't want to go, but that was some tough love. I mean, she had to let me go. And when I got in there, when they started yelling at me, I wanted to cry and go home and see my mama. I want to go home. <laughs> they started yelling, get on them yellow footsteps. And you knew you had just stepped into a pile of, you know, <laughs> and it's about to come down on you. I was stationed and never went overseas. I was at Camp Lejeune with my brother. Stevie was the Marine Corps boxing champ for two or three years. But my problem started when I got out of the Marine Corps. <laughs> and uh, I got involved in organized crime. And I worked for a friend of mine. I can't say his name. And, and I continued to do foolish things 
got messed up with the wrong people. And I was collecting money for a living here and there. I uh, traveled and did a little bit of work for some people. You know? I caught in Michigan. And I uh, had to go away for five years. Wow. Yeah, I went to the federal penitentiary for five years for, for collection of credit, those stores to means. And that's just what happened. I'm not trying to glorify that. But when I came home after doing the five years, a friend of mine, told me to smoke a cigarette. And the cigarette, which I didn't know, was, it was weed, which I never smoked, was laced with crack cocaine. And that one hit sent me on a 12-year addiction run. I had to get away. Um, I had some situations up there that I had to get away from. So I came to Georgia, and I was living with my cousin. And uh, we was getting high. And somebody took one of my pebbles, my crack rock, and then I thought he did it. So I slapped him and I pushed him down the stairs. He put me out and he took me, it's called Doraville train station here, directly across the street from my office. And how ironic this is, is that's where my location I'm at right now. So God brought it full circle. So when I got downtown, I took the train downtown Atlanta. I was homeless. I had nowhere to go. Being homeless in the South wasn't what Anthony pictured for his life at all. But even in that moment, what some would consider to be the most desolate or lonely of times, he was able to find a semblance of a community that helped him through these rough days. There were two people I slept next to. I slept in, on one bench and Ralph and Floyd stepped to the right of me on benches. Right now today, Ralph and Floyd is still sleeping under the 85 Street Bridge on Ellis Street. It's still there. And I've offered to take them and bring them, offer them a place to stay. But they choose to be there. They choose to be there. Ralph is a witness for God right now. And he told me straight up, he said, no, Anthony, I don't want to go nowhere. He said, I'm doing God's work. God makes sure I'm fed and he's keeping me healthy. He says, I lost all my teeth, though. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I see that. <laughs> but the sense of humor that he has in his state of mind and situation that he's in, to him, that's where he's supposed to be, doing God's work, reaching the people, witnessing the people down there, putting some hope into their lives. To me, it's upside down. To him, he's fine. And uh, I, I got really close with them, and it breaks my heart that they're still there, but I got really close with a lot of people down there. When you were living in all this, where did you think you fit in those boxes? Did you want to be there, or did you want to get out? And what about your addiction? Were you... Were you even aware that you had an addiction at the time? First of all, I didn't ask for this addiction to happen. I wasn't looking for this to happen. I thought I was just going to take a puff of a cigarette or a joint and it was going to be over with. I was trapped. I basically, I got baited into this. And I was bitter for a long time. I mean, how could you tell somebody to try something that you know is going to get them addicted and think it's a joke? Everybody's not your friend. I don't care, family, who they are. Everybody doesn't have your best interests at heart. So you, you need to be aware of what you're doing when you're out there. You need to be aware of what you're drinking, what you're smoking, whatever. Don't accept nothing from nobody. That's my theory on this whole thing. You just can't do it. At this point, Anthony has been homeless for a while. And one day, something mystical happens inside of a Greyhound station of all places. 
He recalls trying to stay warm inside the bus building when all of a sudden, a man and woman appear who he believes were angels. These angels instruct Anthony to head to the local VA hospital. He's not doing well on this particular night. He's feeling tightness in his chest. He's scared to go to the hospital, but he finally caves and follows his angel's advice. But as he follows them out of the door, the police and other bystanders laugh at him. There's no couple anywhere in sight. He's finally told to purchase a bus ticket or leave, so he begins to panhandle. Later again, another man agrees to buy him a train ticket so he can get to the hospital. But as he turns to thank the man, something unexplainable happens. So I step on the train. I turn around. And then I want to say thank you. And he's gone. There's no way in the world this man could have got up the top of the escalator. If anybody's been in Atlanta, they know at five points, you got to walk over there first of all to get up. He was gone. I did what he told me. I got to the VA hospital. They, they rushed me in the room. They took my clothes off. They IV'd me. I stayed there for five days. So the fifth day, the nurse came up to me. Or the fourth day, the nurse comes up. She said, Mr. Delgado. She says, how would you like to go into a rehab program? I says, for what? Uh, I said, I wasn't feeling good. That's all. I'm not, I don't need no rehab program. She said, that's the first step of denial. You're in denial. She says, but if you don't go into the program, you're going to be back on the streets tomorrow. So two things are going to happen, a good bed or the streets. And uh, I opted to go into the program, and it was the best thing I did. You had to go to church. You had to get a job. You had a program. And I was still pretty much addicted. I guess I still had the cravings. I started going to church, and they're talking about baptizing me. And I said, hold it. I says, I'm from up north. I'm baptized already. The pastor looked at me. He says, well, Brother Anthony, let me tell you something. <laughs> I'll never forget it. He said, that don't count. You got sprinkled. You got to go down in the water. I told him, hold on a minute, Pastor. I'm down south with all you holy rollers, always talking about baptism and going in water. That's all I've been hearing about. <laughs> he says, no. He says, if you do what I ask you to do, and you as an adult accept Christ as your Savior, he said, you will see a difference in your life. And I got baptized in Jesus' name. I came out of that water. Yeah. I came out of that water. And it was like something come over me. The community that Anthony created while unhoused meant a lot to him, even if the circumstances were unfortunate. At first, giving back to this chosen family of sorts wasn't in the cards. But little did he know that through a few interactions with a local restaurant and church members, he drastically changed the course of his life for himself and others, ultimately finding what he calls his purpose in life. So one day we leave church and we're at Panera Bread and they're throwing away bags of bread. And the pastor says, Anthony. Brother Anthony, ask him. I said, Pastor, I ain't, I ain't begging for no bread. I ain't asking for no bread. He looked at me and said, Brother Anthony, we could take it back to the church, give it to the members. I said, yeah, there's a lot of pastry. They gave it to me. But the manager says, do you have your 501c? I said, I don't even know what that is. He says, the nonprofit status, well, we can get a write-off. He said, you should get one. I said, for what? I just want your bread today. <laughs> Two weeks later, we're back there again. And I asked him again. He says, okay. He said, did you apply? I says, no, but I promise you I will. So he gave me the bread. 
after we pass it out, we're getting ready. I'm throwing something away. One of the mothers of the church comes up. She said, Brother Anthony, she said, don't you throw that bread out again. I said, well, what do you want me to do with it? She said, I want you to take it downtown. For what? She said, go take it to the park where you used to sleep. And again, I said, I don't want to relive that. I'm not doing it. And she says, Brother Anthony, what was the sermon about today? I said, Mother, it was about obedience. She says, okay, so what are you going to do? You're going to be obedient to what I'm asking you? <laughs> she had me. She knew she had me. <laughs> I said, okay, Mother. So I go downtown, and I see Ralph. I see Floyd. I see Arthur. I see all these people down there. I'm passing out cakes and pies and just hanging out. And I start crying. And I say, thank you, Father God. I found my purpose in life. And then from after that, God just started working. And the pastor told me, he said, through your obedience and everything we've asked you to do, he said, look what God's doing for you. I said, yeah. He said, he gave you the gift of help. I said, well, tell him to take it back. I don't want it. <laughs> he says, Anthony, God don't take back what he gives you. Yeah. He says, so you're stuck with it. He says, <laughs> I told him, Pastor, tell him to take it back. I don't want to do this, though. But you, you're stuck. I mean, you're stuck with it, but you're very passionate about I'm stuck, it. I'm How, stuck, bro. They got like, me. But it's yeah. got you, and you seem like to have a lot of joy doing it. Was it always this joyful for you, or was it a ride to get there to where you're excited to do the work? It was a long ride. I had a van. I had to stop with a pair of pliers. I started in my garage with two refrigerators in my apartment complex. And they said, Mr. Delgado, she says, you're going to have to get a license. I said, why? She says, because you're running a business. I said, not really. I'm just giving away food to the neighbors. She says, well, management thinks it's a business. So and they're not going to give you a license. I says, oh, yes, they will. So I went to City Hall the next day and I applied. And the lady at the front desk says, hold on, Mr. Delgado, I'll be right back. They gave me a business license the first time ever in an apartment complex right here in Dunwoody, Georgia. And I knew God was working then. And then we went from the apartment complex to a small building. And I started feeling really, really good about it. I, I, I really did. And I said, this can't be bad, but how am I going to fund it? I still hadn't got my 501c. And I made a man named John Eaton. And I called him. I went to go see him. He said it's going to cost about $1,500. So when I come into his house, his wife is coming down the stairs. And I hear her say, John, is that your client? He said, yes. She says, you need to help that man. She said, I felt anointing on him as soon as he came in the house. It's just what she said. He cut the price in half for me. And I, he's been with me ever since. <laughs> he's been uh, watching over my programming. Yeah, it just grew and grew. Now I have eight full-time employees. That's incredible. Tell me more about the people you serve. You've told me a lot about how you got here, who supported you, but who are the everyday people you were with every day, dealing with addiction, homelessness, all these other things? Well, because we can't really go downtown to feed the homeless no more because they're going to give you a ticket, a $400 ticket for feeding people. So we shifted. We basically feed families, in, which is a major demand right now. I mean, these are working people, single parents, like three or four kids, but they got the rent, they got the utilities, they got car payments. And you, know, you get a weekly paycheck and it's like two, three, four hundred bucks. You don't have a lot left over when it comes to at the end of the month. So we're basically focusing on families. 
and it's been very successful. Every Friday we go to an apartment complex and we pick one city a month and we work with all the police departments. With the city that we're in, those departments will send officers to come out and they help us distribute the food to families. And it's a good thing because it, the relationship between the community and the police needs a bond. And if they get to talk to the officers that are there. They get to see, hey, it's not as bad as you think talking to these guys. You know, so it kind of works out for them also. And uh, I do hurricane relief also. I've been to New Orleans. I've been to Florida. My box truck goes wherever we need it. Your story is so much about addiction, this kind of forced addiction that, yes, hit you, that led you on this path. What are the stories of other folks you're, you're working with? Is addiction the common line through a lot of them or what are, what are the barriers they're facing? No, contrary to that, not at all. It's employment. It's money. Most of the people we deal with are not addicted. There's having a hard time right now. Most of them all single parents, but multiple kids. And that's the sad thing about it. When you got a 25, 26-year-old with four kids, little babies, most of the families don't step up to help. It's very heartbreaking when you see that. You go to these homes and you see the cabinets are empty. But, oh, I got a boyfriend. He loves me. But he ain't bringing food in the house. How does he love you? That's not love. I mean, you, you, you can't rely on him to support your family. You got to get step up, do something, try to find something. Listen, if you want a job, I can send you right across the street right now. I tell him, and you can have a job tomorrow morning. It's called work a day. You get paid at the end of every day, but it's a job. And if you go every day, that's $150, $175 that day. But they won't do it. Yeah. They won't do it. But do you think it's some of it is in my experience with working with different folks in crisis, sometimes they don't know that they're worth fighting for, that worth fighting to invest in themselves. Do you see that as similar with these people? I do, because they have no self-confidence. They don't even know how to love themselves. So I spend time with them and I talk to them. I say, you know what? You love yourself before you love anybody else. Love yourself first. Then you'll be able to really love somebody. Your self-confidence. I can't do this. I can't. Yeah, you can we had a GED training center, free. Come get your GEDs, whatever you want. Come out, we'll help you. I know all these folks that do not have their GED wouldn't even come. To, they'd come one time, two times, and never come back. It's like it's a challenge for them to do better for themselves. Like I said, the self-confidence you need. I didn't have it, but I learned how to get it. I learned patience. I learned how to show love because I love myself. I didn't love myself at all. Now I learn how to be humble and learn how to say, hey, let me help you. What do you need? Yeah. And I feel like these people do have reasons of why they think they're not lovable. You know, I know with homelessness, there's a high risk yeah. of HIV positivity. So when people are HIV positive, a lot of times they feel like they're not deserving of love or that they're, they don't have a job. They don't deserve love. Mm. How do you get them to overcome things like that? And do you see like health as a big barrier for these people too? Yeah, that is a big thing too. They're not on any type of uh, insurance or anything. They don't qualify for some stuff. I mean, some of them do, but they don't apply. You try to get them to apply. They, yeah, I'll come back and do it. Come on, we'll get you on the computer, sit down with you and help you. You can lead them to the water. You know what they say, but you can't make them drink it. And I'm not the only organization out here doing what I'm doing as far as trying to get these people educated. We have financial planning to help people teach them how to budget your money, how to buy a house, and how to do these different things. 
So it, you just don't give up. You keep trying. And if you save one or two, it did something. Because those one or two, hopefully they'll pass it along what they learned and, and, and share the knowledge that they got from, from coming around here, coming to these different classes and stuff. But I don't give up. I come in here in the morning, 4.35 o'clock. I pray. I anoint my building. And I ask God every day, God, just put me in front of somebody that I could plant a seed in that another saint can water and let you give the increase to throughout the day. Some people say, man, that's easy to say. Yeah. And it's easy to do, too. Believe in yourself. And then somebody will believe in you. Even through humble and somewhat reserved beginnings, I Care Atlanta was founded and has kept their doors open during difficult pandemic times. Today, the center serves the community through its food bank and has even added other services, including job placements, mentorships, and a GED center, among other programs. For Anthony, the success of the nonprofit is centered within its core message, truly putting in the work for the people within his community. It can't just be me. Collaboration through nonprofits should be the main thing that we should be looking at. All of us working together, but it doesn't happen. Some of these organizations are all about their organization only. Funding is not as free or open as everybody thinks it is. You're competing. You're competing with organizations that probably are not even doing the work that you're doing, but because they know somebody, they're getting the money. And that's the bad thing about it. So... I'm one person, one organization with some fantastic employees. We do what we can, but we need more people to step up, more more organizations say, hey, step out and do a little bit more than what they're doing. Some of them are doing a fantastic job. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's some good, good organizations out here. But when when you're working alone and you try to collaborate with somebody else, and it's a fight just to get them to, to get together with you. All nonprofits need volunteers. All nonprofits need money. Give them a couple of hours a month, you know, or something. You know, just, you don't even have to go to a nonprofit to be nice to somebody. Before I got this program, I just smile at somebody, buy somebody a cup of coffee. I did that at Starbucks. Most people should just look outside their circle and say, who can I help today? What organization can I go volunteer with? Bring some clothes. Buy some canned goods or some food. Bring it to one of the shelters. There's all kinds of ways that people can get involved with the community. And specifically with iCare Atlanta, how can people support you in this really important work that you're doing every day? Well, we, 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 like I said, we're basically a food-based program, but we venture out and everything. So my main thing right now is funding, to be straight up with you. It's funding because we have so much food here. We don't turn anybody away. You don't have to be a needy person per se, like your cabinets are empty to get food from us. Anybody can come. If you was in Atlanta, you wanted to come by and get some groceries and you wanted to go give it to somebody, we'd give it to you. Because we encourage people to come pick something up and bless somebody with it. But for me, my, my main thing is, is funding here. We lost some funders because they funded us for over three years. And if you're in a, if you're out there in a nonprofit arena, you know what I'm talking about. Some some funders give you one, two, three years, four years. We lost three of them this year alone. And the pandemic hasn't helped none of us in the arena. That's hurt a lot. Funding has dropped off a lot. 
And that's that's what we need. But we all, we, we take canned goods, we take clothes, we take toiletries and whatever they want to do. They ain't turn nothing away. <laughs> <laughs> For some of us, finding that balance of loving ourselves and others is a lifelong search. Anthony certainly went through the ups and downs that come with addiction. But even then, he was able to find his tribe, the people he could lean on and learn to love, despite being unhoused. And it was this journey that led him to self-love and allows him to double down on this love towards others by giving back every single day. If you're interested in finding out more about Anthony's nonprofit, head over to iCareAtlanta.org to find out how you can help. This has been In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us. Find this episode and others on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to share, rate, and review if you enjoyed this conversation. This show is produced by Yvonne Sheehan and mastered by James Foster. Our show researcher is Jordan Raggio, and our writer is Yvette Lopez. A special shout out to our guest, Anthony Delgado. I'm your host, Zach Stafford. Zach Stafford.